we have any grandparents in the room to, today? Come on now, yeah, grandparents, we love you. How many of you love your grandparents? Okay, okay, there we go. I was about to pray for this section of the room, man. Who hates their grandparents? Like, what's wrong with you? No, I'm glad the hands did go up for those watching online. I love my grandparents. My, my grandfather, he's the only one still alive. He's 93 years old, lives in Kokomo, goes down to Florida for the winter. At like 92-ish, he fell and hit his head and had to have brain surgery. And still, a year later, doesn't miss a beat. Still drives, still golfs multiple times a week. He was uh, in Japan during World War II and survived all of these things. I want just a little bit of my grandfather's genetic makeup. And I've got so many great stories of my grandparents growing up. And I was thinking about who doesn't love their grandparent. I'll tell you someone who doesn't like grandparents. That's parents. <laughs> Amen? For the parents in the room, I don't know what it is about my parents, my kids, grandparents. I got a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. And it's like the second they come in the door, it's like you grandparents, you're like, who wants some ice cream? Sodas for everyone. Who wants some? It, all of a sudden, you start pulling out bags of candy that you've been collecting for the last month. Have some candy. Get them all hyped up. The answer to every question is yes. Yes, you can. And after you get them all hyped up, grandparents, what do you do? You leave. And you leave the bombshell of the aftermath for us parents to clean up. In fact, I blame my parents, my kids' grandparents, for the story I'm going to share with you at Christmas time. Uh, they decided to get our kids piggy banks. That sounds smart. Give them a little fiscal responsibility to a three-year-old. And they collect all of that change, and then they walk around our house. And you know what you do. They, they shake it a whole bunch, and then they come up to me, and they say, Dad, do you want to hear me count my money? No. I don't want to see you count your money. I, I've seen enough of you counting your money. And they pour all the money out, and they get it all, and then it goes everywhere, and it never always gets back in there. And it's all because of the grandparents. And so my kids, they save up their money for something really important. And when you're a child, you never know when that really important thing is going to happen. So at any given moment, it could occur. It happened this week. My three children are playing with the neighborhood kids out in the backyard, and all of a sudden, they hear a sound. I know it's different in every neighborhood and every culture, but the sound, I'll give you a couple options, sounds like this. Do, 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 do. Or maybe it's... You ever heard that before? What is it? The ice cream truck has come, and it is coming through the neighborhood. And if you've ever been around children, when the ice cream truck comes into the neighborhood, it is literally like an air raid is occurring. All of a sudden, the children, they start running everywhere. They're running into each other, you know, parents. And so my, my wife, she hears the noise. The air raid has come. She runs outside. She's, quick, children, get in the house. Take shelter now. My nine-year-old, he runs straight up the stairs. He gets to the top. Rather than being locked in the home, he takes his piggy bank. It's a Pikachu. He starts dumping out the contents. He stuffs it all into his pockets. He runs out the door sprinting across the neighborhood, across traffic, all the way where we can't see him any longer to take his money and buy the ice cream that he really desperately needed. And of course, 
all the time. My wife is chasing him across the neighborhood. I'm hearing him scream because our three-year-old has followed after him and is running through streets and who knows where because we can't see him anymore. And who's to blame? The grandparents. (laughs) Nothing to do with our bad parenting skills. And eventually they get him and he comes home and he takes his $3 ice cream and we make him throw it in the trash because that's how we parent, you know, because we're not grandparents. Put that in the trash. So he learned a little lesson there. But, you know, I share that because we're going to look at Matthew 6, 19. And I realize it's not just like nine-year-old children that misuse their resources. And I'm not just talking about money. I think one of the most misused resources as we're studying heaven and what it's actually going to be like, and it's not some boring thing for all eternity, a forever church service. It's going to be incredible, as we've described the last two weeks. So many of us spend this time, this short time that we have, just wasting it on things we'll never care about a thousand years from now. And we live to the idolatry of the next job promotion, the next purchase, our kids' next sports achievement, Whatever it is we invest our time in that we probably won't care about when all is said and done. That's at the heart of what I'd love to discuss with you. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 6, 19, you ready to study God's word, church? These verses, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to go back to that question that I want to put up on the screen for each of you. And I'm going to come start with this question and come back to this question. What are you doing with what you've been given? It's the big question I'd like to ask you today. And before I pray, I want to encourage you. If you are currently married or you're seriously dating, consider getting married, I'm going to invite you to walk through this with your spouse It's what in two weeks the Significant Marriage Seminar is designed for. And our Married for Life Outpost will be hosting that seminar. It only happens May 4th through the 6th. You can sign up today at the Connect Center. And it's not just for people in crisis, although it can be. It is designed so that you and your spouse can say, how can we have a significant marriage that makes an impact that lasts for eternity? If you've never been through it, I really encourage you to do it. Will you pray with me? God. We just pause and uh, I know racing to, to get into the building and get our donuts and coffee and check our kids in and get into this room. and We cannot think about what's really at stake here. We acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in the room with us. We pray that you'd speak to us. Some people came in and it's their first time in a church facility in a really long time or ever. We designed this church for people like that. We believe nobody's too far from God to experience life change through you, Jesus. That our church today should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So may you truly speak to our souls and make an eternal impact. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I'll tell you, I, I love this topic. You know that. The last two weeks, we've demonstrated what heaven, we believe, is going to be like. In fact, I, I loved it so much, I mentioned in seminary, I wrote a paper that was supposed to be 10 pages long, and I took an extra three weeks, and it ended up being 30 pages long. Do you remember that story? If you missed it, it's in the first week of this series. Uh, I actually posted the, uh, well, the team posted the uh, seminary paper that I wrote on heaven, 
on Facebook. It went up last night. You can actually download it if you would truly like to be bored after the service. It's a very in-depth uh, theological, biblical, and historical study of heaven for those that are into that. I encourage you to download that. But I love it so much, when you ask all these questions, I'm going to answer as many of them as I possibly can. And my desire would be that we would get an even greater picture for what heaven will be like and won't be like. And at the same time, then we'll truly think about what we're doing with the time we have now to live for heaven. You guys ready? I'm telling you, it's going to be a lot of questions. Here we go. Write it down. First question. Did all of the people who had a near-death experience become Christians after they returned to earth? The quick answer is no. But I want to tell you, if you missed last weekend, John Burke spent the last 30 years, he actually was an atheist who came to Christ because he read one of the first books on near-death experiences. It caused him to go study the Bible. And through studying the Bible, he became a Christian. And so after 30 years of over, collecting over 1,000 of these stories... He compiled it and compared it to what scripture actually teaches. And a couple of things I want to make clear. Number one, uh, John said this at the beginning. It's really important for our discussion today is that you don't develop a belief system or a worldview or uh, a theology based off just one person's story. That could be really dangerous. And ultimately, the Bible is our authority. But he looked at the trends that they saw and compared it to scripture and the similarities that you could see. But the reason that he did it, because yes, not everybody became a Christian, and he felt like too many times these stories that people were sharing were being interpreted through the lens of people who were not Christians. And if we believe as Christians that we know the truth of the afterlife, that because of the death of Jesus is atoning sacrifice, anybody could draw near to him if we receive his free grace and mercy in our life. We don't deserve to be in the presence of God. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, if we turn to him and we repent, we can receive his grace and mercy. And because Jesus overcame the grave, death itself, that we could live with him in heaven. And when Jesus returns, there's a new heaven, a new earth. We will live with him forever in our resurrected bodies is what we've been discussing. And so if we believe that, then we should be the ones interpreting the, the stories of what heaven will actually be like. So no, not everyone did uh, experienced that. And that's part of the reason he wrote the book. With no segue, the next question you guys asked is, what about cremated bodies? We've been talking about uh, when someone is cremated, or excuse me, when, when somebody is resurrected, when Jesus returns, if they were cremated and their body was put to ash, can they be resurrected? I want to tell you, I think this is clear. Uh, yes, they can be. And I think it's clear for multiple reasons, both biblically and scientifically. The Bible says from that we will all eventually turn to ash. Also, we know scientifically that even if you are buried in a coffin, your body is going to decay and eventually will be dust. And so there really is no difference long term. And it was actually the early Christians who were persecuted by uh, being taken because they would not renounce faith in Jesus Christ. They would some be burned at the stake and they would take the ashes of their body and throw it into the local river and watch it dissipate to mock the Christian to say, how is your Savior going to resurrect you now? I definitely don't think the martyrs of the Christian faith won't be with us in heaven. And so I don't believe the state of your physical body. We all turn to ash uh, that anybody can be resurrected if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, we are to care for our bodies. Genesis 1.31 says God saw all that he made, and it was very good. It was the sixth day when humans were made. Every other day, it was just good. 
When he made humans, he said it was very good. And we should care for our bodies. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Absolutely. However, I don't believe because uh, you were cremated that you won't get a resurrected body. Next question. Why did 23% have a hellish experience and how did they describe it? I'm combining multiple questions. We had several about hell in particular and the experiences that people shared. First, know that John studied over 1,000 of these over 30 years. And every single person who had one of these experiences could hardly describe it. It was such a horrible, dark, evil experience. Now, the why question, why 23%, I have no idea. That's of the thousands of me studied, that's what occurred. You can have a subjective response to that, give your opinion, but the reality is we don't know why. In fact, a lot of times when you ask the why questions, we won't know the whys until we get to heaven. We can guess, but we don't know for sure. Give you an example. The big one I always tell people that I disciple is why did God choose the storyline he did in the first place with the fall and the battle against evil? Why did he allow evil to occur? All those big questions. I have my opinions, but I won't know fully until I get to heaven. But we do know that that is what occurred, that that many people experienced it and that it is always every single time described in really dark, evil Terms. Why the Bible has trouble putting words to it as well. It calls it, it referred to hell as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in the New Testament, when they would describe hell, they use this word Gehenna. You don't have to know all this, but I find it interesting. It was a reference to this literal place outside the city of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was where all of the refuse, the trash, the dung from Jerusalem would be taken and it would be burned forever. It said the fire would never go out in the Valley of Hinnom. It's where in the Old Testament, when they offered sacrifices of their children, of infants, to the false god Melech, they did it in the Valley of Hinnom. You can look at the Old Testament and see that. And so when they were describing what hell was going to be like, the writers of the Bible could only use, like, you guys know what the Valley of Hinnom is going to be like? It's, it's like that only way worse. A literal place where the fire never goes out. A horrible place where it's described with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you come here long enough, you know we don't share those things to scare people, like the turn and burn type of atmosphere. But we will teach what the Bible says. And the next question that comes up that I think is one of the hardest ones of this whole series is this. Will we mourn our loved ones in hell? Will we even know they aren't there? If you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. Will we even know that they aren't there? It's one of the hard questions um, that we often get asked. It's far harder than the pet one even because it's like these are your closest loving uh, relationships. I have close friends of mine, family members who aren't Christian. And, and they are good people. It's not that the Christian is a better person. It's not our good works that get us into heaven. It was only because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. But it does take us repenting, turning from our pride, and receiving his sacrifice for us. And so the Bible is very clear that those who don't receive that will not be in heaven with us If we've desired to be separated from God during our whole life, we have rejected him eternally. We will get our heart's desire. We will no longer be in his presence and we will be in the place that they refer to as hell. And I share that because I know some of you, it's going to be hard to comprehend what that would be like. How could we possibly not mourn them? And I want to tell you, I know it's hard to comprehend with our fallen, sinful human minds, but actually we 
If you're a Christian, you, you won't. And it's not because God doesn't have compassion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, it's not because God was this angry, spiteful God. In his compassion, the Bible says he desires for every single human being. You were created in the image of God. He loves you. He's pursued you. He desires you. In his compassion, he wants every single one of his children to be in heaven with him. Unfortunately, he's given us the opportunity to reject him so that you only are there if you choose to love him back. And because of that, he sent his only son as a sacrifice for not just some, but for everyone. But because not everyone will receive the grace and mercy of Jesus, we will have people that don't spend eternity with those who are Christian. But we won't mourn them, and we know this in Revelation 21, 4. It's hard for us to comprehend. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You and I will have better relationships with every human being in heaven than we have had with a single human being on earth. The type of compassion and generosity we show one another. We will have a better relationship with God himself. A pure love for him and for human beings. Community like we have never experienced. It's hard for us to comprehend, but it will be difficult to mourn anything because of the love you experience there. And that's what those people were describing last week of what an incredible place heaven actually is. Which brings up this weird question that I didn't see coming, that I actually think is a great question. If heaven is a place that earth was intended to be, right? The Garden of Eden, God was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was paradise. There was no sin at that time without sin, but we as individuals retained free will. What is to prevent us from falling again? What's to keep us from repeating history all over again? Well, I want to tell you, I think I can give you an answer to that, that it won't repeat itself again because something will be very different. That in the Old and New Testament, the adversary in the Hebrew, the Hasatan, Satan, in the New Testament, the devil, was the one trying to prevent us from pursuing God's best in our life that was trying to remain as the obstacle to separate us from God, to choose not to love him. We know in the Bible it is very clear that at the end time, Satan will be forever defeated. It says in Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Good has finally triumphed over evil. You and I will no longer be enslaved to the temptation of sin. Because the temptation won't be there anymore. The spiritual battle will have been fully won and over with. So I don't think history will repeat itself. The next question you guys ask, if you're taking notes, I hope you're all tracking. People say of those who have died, they will always be with me, watch over me. But is that true? Can they hear me cry out to them? I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth on this. Yes, but not really. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Here's what uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We could have looked at multiple passages, but Hebrews 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, literally in the Greek martyrs of the faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And then it compares it to this race. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Multiple times in the New Testament, it compares this life now before heaven to a race. And that's really important when we come to the conclusion of this. And in this passage, it's saying that there are witnesses that are in the stands, essentially, cheering us on. 
So I do believe that those who are in heaven, if you have had a loved one pass and their soul goes to be with Jesus in paradise in heaven before he returns and the resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth, that they can see and are aware of what's going on and cheering us on when we choose to follow the Lord in our lives. Absolutely. However, I, we are not to pray to them. It's actually a pagan thing to pray to your ancestors. And while they can see us, and if it helps you to process, to speak out loud, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yes, as I'll say in a moment here, sometimes God even uses people in maybe in your dream and you've had an experience you can't totally explain. But verses 2 to 3, we are not to pray to them. We are instead to focus on Jesus. Look at verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus that will cause us to not grow weary and lose heart, not just our loved ones watching us. And I think that's really important. Uh, my two best friends growing up were Catholic, and maybe many of you grew up Catholic, and uh, you know, you're familiar with praying to Mary or to the saints. And while I think Catholics are definitely Christians, and there are those that love Jesus and will be together in heaven, there's no mercy road section of heaven, and we should stop being judgmental to people who believe differently than us about these things. Uh, but I want to tell you, there is a, a clear difference in Protestantism that we are and the Catholic faith, that we don't need a mediator between us and God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so I don't think praying to our loved ones or saints or to Mary or or ancestors is a biblical practice that you and I should do. Which brings up this next question. You ready? People say loved ones who have passed away have visited them in a dream or as a ghost. Is that possible? Well, first of all, in a dream, totally different. Yeah, God can use a lot of things to speak to us. Sometimes it's interpreting what we've experienced in a dream that's the difficult part. And I don't know, sometimes you maybe just had bad pizza the night before. I don't know. And other times God may be speaking to you. But what I want to differentiate is the idea of a ghost. That a ghost is, is falling around. Are there ghosts? And here's my, my honest, honest response. Man, I really hope not. Because, <laughs> man, if they're like following us around and Eric Maitland dies next week and he's going to be creeping up on me for the rest of my life on this planet... Going all six cents on me? Man, I hope not. Because that's super creepy. And I also believe that that doesn't occur. Because both in the Bible and in the stories you heard last week, when someone passes, they were going one of two places. They were either going to heaven with Jesus, or they had this hellish experience of being separated from God uh, for eternity. And so I don't believe that there are, are ghosts, souls that are just kind of don't know what to do and wandering around here. I hope that makes sense. Although there are a couple of things we have difficulty making sense of, like in 1 Samuel, when somebody speaks from beyond the grave, and uh, Matthew chapter 17, verses 2 to 3, uh, when the transfiguration occurs with Jesus, there he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, which I find really interesting with the stories last week and the bright light that was emanating from people. I don't know if this is Jesus in his spiritual body here with Moses and Elijah, but look what happens. And his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So my answer is no, ghosts don't occur, but yes, that Jesus is supernatural and can do some pretty crazy things sometimes. And so while I've never seen or experienced a transfiguration, I know no one who has since. Uh, yes, anything is possible 
with God. The next question, the biggest one I had multiple times, had to do with the tenured professor who was an atheist last week. If you missed it, you can watch it online. Who shared his experience of having a hellish experience. And before he crossed this particular boundary that he could not come back from, he cried out to Jesus. And Jesus wrapped his arms around him. And when he woke up, he had given his life to Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his life, he's not only lived as a Christian, he actually became a pastor. And his whole family was alienated from him because he was so devout in his faith after he had been an atheist. It's an incredible story of restoration and redemption. I believe that grace can happen to any human being that is in this room or watching online, just like it did to that man. However, I want to clarify a big question that occurred, and that's this. How can he make a decision after life and be led into heaven? I was always taught and believed that you make the decision in life. Can you help? Had multiple people asking a similar question to this. And I want to make absolutely clear, the, the Bible does not guarantee anyone a second chance after death. And what I think is important from what John shared was, he mentioned that they all knew there was this boundary they could not cross. That that professor was not fully biologically dead. And with modern science, we are reviving people in a way we may not have done even 100 years ago. And so, no, I don't believe uh, that every person gets a second chance. I can't even totally make sense of that person's individual story. And again, that's why we don't develop a whole worldview or theology based off of one person's story. The Bible is clear, though. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There is but one death. We're not all given a second chance. That's why uh, John last weekend said there was a boundary that they knew they uh, couldn't cross and come back, that he was not fully biologically dead. And while I still have questions about this, I wouldn't say I agree with every uh, thing that one of the people interviewed shared, but it has really stretched my thinking and my faith to think about that the afterlife is very real and they are giving us a glimpse of what the Bible already teaches And so even if some of the stories that you hear are not true, if you find it in Scripture, maybe it'll give you a picture of what the reality of the afterlife will be like. Now, I do leave room, I think, biblically for someone who never heard the gospel in an unreached people group, although it's not certain. And that's why we as Christians should go to every single people group all around the world. And while people are driven by the mission of Jesus Christ to, to share our faith this side of heaven, but there is no guarantee of anything, um, uh, of a second chance. Um, uh, children or infants, I, I definitely believe that haven't had an opportunity. God in his compassion, uh, although there's no passages specifically about it, uh, that they will be in heaven with us. I have one who has passed, and so I'm thankful for that as well. I'll answer any additional questions you have on Facebook Live this week. I encourage you to turn in a Connect card at the Connect Center. But those were the questions that you asked. And what I found really interesting, they all were about giving us a greater picture, and they often had to do with relationships we have today. And so I started with Matthew 6, 19. I want to conclude with that thought that the big idea for this weekend is do not store up your treasures in, on earth, but rather store them up in heaven. Your time your talents, your treasures, this side of heaven, it's the only time you and I get.
And I don't know why. I'm even uh, prey to this sometimes. We all are. Like a nine-year-old child, when the ice cream truck comes to town, we see that next thing that we chase after with our life. And I can't tell you how many people I know who encounter Jesus, and then they find this boyfriend or this girlfriend who doesn't know him, and all of a sudden, they're running the other way frantically. Or they get this job promotion, but it, it, it causes them to lose integrity, and so they run this other way. And how often we get distracted in this life from the things that we're going to care about when we get to heaven. So studying heaven isn't just about giving us a picture of what's going to happen when we get there. It's inspiring us to live differently now because of it. And I want to share this uh, last thought about the judgment seat of Christ. The reason we store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth is not just because uh, it's the only time we have, but it's also because, do you know that you will actually, that we will be acknowledged, awarded for how we choose to follow Jesus to this side of earth. Our good works don't get us into heaven, but the judgment seat of Christ, there is one judgment of whether you get into heaven or not, but there's also a second judgment where he chooses to reward those who have sacrificed and followed him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is not that whether you were a good person, you got into heaven, and you were a bad person, you went to hell. Nobody deserves to be in the presence of God. It's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we get to do that. But this is rewarding those positively for those who have sacrificed this side of heaven. And it uses this analogy of a race marked out for us. And the, the, the words there, judgment seat, in that era, everyone would have been familiar with what that was. The word judgment in Greek is bima. The bima seat was the place that the judge at the Olympics sat in. And at the end of the race, they would come down and the judge who sat from the Bema seat would award each person according to how they ran the race. The person who got the gold medal will be awarded with that, the silver medal, the bronze medal, only originally they didn't give out medals, they gave out, anybody know? Crowns that they would place on each individual person said, don't think like metal medieval crowns, think like ancient Greco-Roman time crowns. And that's why the Bible uses this analogy that in heaven there will be different crowns awarded to people who chose to follow him because Jesus Christ on the Bema seat is going to award people based on the how they lived. I know that you think the Oscars is the best award ceremony you have ever seen, but the celebrities on the red carpet will not compare to the award ceremony when you and I get to heaven. And I live most of my life at least thinking about what people think about me now, being drawn to that next thing that i got to chase after, rather than strategically thinking this life is short. I'm going to live for things that I'm going to care about a thousand years from now. And it's not just about I want to receive this big award when I get to heaven. It's that thank you, Jesus, that we get to see how people sacrifice. And they gave the analogy of like people that light is emanating more strongly from certain and particular people. I don't think you're going to have a literal crown when you get to heaven. You're going to be acknowledged that people can see, man, this guy's sacrificed for the kingdom, baby. High five. I can't believe I, I wish I'd have done more of that. And this is the only time we can live on our twofold mission to help those in need and to share our faith. And I know for most of us, I'm talking to the Christians in the room or watching online, we waste so much of our existence that we have on this planet. Chasing after things we're never going to give a rip about a thousand years from now. Am I being too blunt? 
Because I look at myself and we obsess in our culture over these little things of this next purchase. We pray more about our our houses and that house purchase than we ever do about our lost brothers and sisters who don't know Jesus Christ. We care more about our children's sports career than we do about their friends who, who they could actually be used to impact for all of eternity. And I share that not with condemnation, but with excitement that we could actually celebrate that Jesus isn't just saying that frivolously. He's going to acknowledge your sacrifice when you get to heaven. They said it in the Old Testament in Isaiah 62, 11, See, your Savior, Jesus, comes. See, his reward is with him. Jesus even said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I began with this question, and I'm going to end with it. What are you doing with what you've been given? It's the big question you and I have to answer this weekend in light of everything that we've studied. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I first pray that for those who are here in the room with us right now or watching in different parts of the world online, that there may be even one person here who hasn't repented and received your grace and mercy in their life. They haven't chose to love you back the way that you have first loved them. And maybe this would be the opportunity where they could claim their eternal inheritance in heaven with you, not because of our good works or because we're better than other human beings, but because we know you, Jesus. If that's you in the room and you'd like to surrender your life to Jesus, I invite you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, I confess I'm not perfect. Forgive me for my wrongdoing. And I receive your grace and mercy in my life. And I claim my eternal inheritance in heaven with you because of your sacrifice and resurrection, Jesus. And then for those of us who are Christians in the room, maybe we have, like a nine-year-old, chasing after whatever opportunity comes before us, wasting the time, talents, and treasures we've been entrusted with, that today we would pray this dangerous prayer God, use me. I'm fully yours. If that's you in the room, you're already a Christian. You've prayed and received Christ in your life, but you've never given him fully your time, talents, and treasures. I want to give you the opportunity to live for something that you're going to care about a thousand years from now. Pray this with me silently as I pray it out loud. God, on this day, I'm going to change. I'm not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but I surrender my time, my talents, and my treasures to your service. May you truly use me in this life. God, we surrender everything to you, and we love you. We declare you Lord of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's family said, amen.